Beware, citizen. You are now departing from the world of allowable opinion. The Tom Woods Show. Welcome, everybody. It is Friday, January 24th, 2014. We're talking to Walter Williams today, the great Walter Williams. Walter Williams, you all know, he's the John M. Olin Distinguished Professor of Economics at George Mason University and a nationally syndicated columnist. Professor Williams has written 10 books, among them The State Against Blacks, Up from the Projects, an autobiography, and most recently Race and Economics, How Much Can Be Blamed on Discrimination. And I'm so pleased to be able to welcome to the program Walter Williams. Walter Williams, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you. All right, I want to start off before we get into the listener questions. And by the way, some of my listener questions were things like, Ask him how he got to be so awesome. So we're, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. We'll skip those, but I thought you'd appreciate knowing your, the, the extent of your fan base out there. But I want to start off with a recent column of yours in which you were talking about the idea, an idea that you've talked about in the past. You're talking about the idea of peaceful secession, which sounds so crazy and radical to most people, and yet you explain it as if it's just common sense. So can you just tell us what was the point of that article? What were you driving at there? Well, yes. Well, the name of the article is uh, is Parting Company, and um, and I've talked about this uh, before. And I and I and I, say, I ask the question: that is, uh, should people uh, be uh, if one if one group of people prefers a strong government control management of people's lives, while another group prefers uh, liberty and people desire to be alone? I was asking the question, should they be required to enter into conflict with one another uh, to have their way? Should, they, should, should peace-loving people, uh, liberty-loving people, should they be forced to ha- enter into conflict with those people who want uh, con- uh, you know, government control? And I say, no, they should not be forced into conflict. That is, they should, they should part company. And, and I was given the, the example... Uh, uh, that uh, the problem that we face as a nation is very similar to a problem in a marriage. And that is, uh, one partner in the marriage uh, disobeys the, the marital vows, tries to impose all kinds of restrictions on the other uh, partner, and the question is, uh, should they be forced to fight, or should they peaceably uh, separate? And and I think that uh, they should peaceably separate. Now, when people talk about uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, to, to, uh, bring up this issue. They they bring up the issue of the of the war between the states in 1861, and they point out, well, do we want all this bloodshed? And I say, no, we don't want the bloodshed. We want people to be able to uh, peaceably uh, separate from one another. That is, uh, and matter of fact. There's a uh, there's a group of young people, uh, and uh, and they're they're trying to organize about twenty thousand Americans to move to the state of New Hampshire, yeah, and then peaceably take over the government, you know, through the voting uh, uh, through the democratic process, and then uh, send their senators and congressmen to Washington to negotiate negotiate with Congress to obey the Constitution, and if Congress doesn't obey the Constitution, they should make a, they, some of them are saying uh, they, that they'll show, they should make a unilateral declaration of independence. Why do you think it is, though, when you explain something like this, it sounds so logical, it doesn't sound like you're saying anything crazy, but yet for some reason Americans seem to 
be almost allergic to the idea of secession. They, they're okay with secession if it's going on somewhere else in the world. The Czechs and the yep. Slovaks can secede from one another. But for yep. some reason, it's unthinkable for the Union to be divided into smaller parts. Why do you think that is? I, I don't know, but I, I, I think that m- most Americans do not have a very good understanding of our history. Uh, that is, uh, when, when we separated, when we seceded from, uh, from King George, well, the, uh, the Treaty of Paris was written in 1783, and the Treaty of Paris established 13 sovereign nations. These were New, New York was a nation, Pennsylvania was a nation, and Alabama was a nation. And so, so these nations came together. In the in the in the 1787 to uh, to 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 have a confederacy, you know, to have you know to have a uh, to, to to have a a, a federal a federalist uh, uh, system, and and matter of fact, uh, if you read the ratification documents of of New York, Rhode Island, and and uh, and Virginia, in the ratification documents, they say that. If the federal government becomes abusive of the powers that we've delegated to it, we have the right to resume those powers. And, matter of fact, the Constitution of the United States would have never been ratified if the states did not believe that they had the right to uh, secede. And I just point out one other thing. That is, we have to keep in mind, the average American just does not know, that the federal government was created by the states. That is, the states are the principles and the federal government is the agent of the states. And and principals have the right to fire an agent. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself, and indeed I have tried to say it better than that, but I think that's that's the point, is who who were the principals and who is the agent. And on that topic, of course, I can't help bringing up the subject of state nullification. You were kind enough to write a nice blurb on the back cover of my book on that subject, and then you testified in front of either the House or Senate Judiciary Committee, I think, in South Carolina. It, it, sub- it, was, it was the House. It was the House. Okay, on the subject of nullification, and we were all cheering you for that. And this has become a bit of a controversy. There are people who increasingly support this idea, but then you find some people on, on the right, in right-wing radio, I don't want to mention names, who are quite abusive toward people who believe in the idea of state nullification. Can we put you officially on the record as being in the pro-nullifier camp? I take the position of uh, of of um, of, uh, of Jefferson and Madison when they when they wrote the what is the Kentucky uh, uh, and Virginia, Virginia resolution, yeah. and and they said that if the federal government if if the if Congress uh, makes laws that are unconstitutional that are that are, that are unconstitutional, uh, we have the right to ignore those laws. We have the right to nullify those laws, and moreover, you know, to getting involved with the issue of what's constitutional and what's not constitutional, uh, I believe was Madison or either Jefferson, I forget right now, said that we should not give the Supreme Court a monopoly on the interpretation of the Constitution, because if we give the Supreme Court a monopoly on the interpretation of the Constitution, then we'll be living under oligarchy. And it turns out they weren't just uh, making that up. As a matter of fact, we, we now know exactly what their dystopia that they feared uh, would, would be like. Yeah, well, I, well, well, I would say, and when I was in South Carolina, testifying in South Carolina, uh, we were talking about nullification of of the of Obamacare that is to make the in, to make the citizens of the, of the state of South Carolina uh uh immune 
to well, they did not have to obey Obamacare laws, and and Obamacare is not in the Constitution. So so what what why should the people of, of South Carolina or any state obey a law that's not in the Constitution? But you might say to me, there are a whole lot of laws that we are forced to obey that are not in the Constitution. Yeah, but that is the fundamental question, and there never really is a good answer to it. I, I want to shift gears, though. I want to take a couple of questions from the, the listeners. And one that came up that I found interesting was they want to know what your thoughts are on Martin Luther King, a couple of people in recent history. Martin Luther King, and then I want to add Nelson Mandela. What are your thoughts on both of these figures? Well, I, I think that uh, the, 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 the Martin Luther King's his role in the civil rights movement, I think, was, was uh, very, very important to, to our country. To, uh, but, however, I think that uh, well, you know, the, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 evolved out of the, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, much of it led by Martin Luther King. And I think that, that writing the civil rights, the, the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act was a big mistake. I think that what the federal government should have done uh, was to, or what the court should have done at the time, was to say, look, the United States Constitution applies to every single American, regardless of religion, race, et cetera, et cetera, and just leave it at that. And now, now uh, Nelson Mandela, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he he was, uh, you know, he, he, well, we might say that, according to today's standards, he he engaged in terroristic acts. But that does not necessarily make him uh, a, a bad fellow, because if you ask King George about the founding fathers of our nation, they would, he would have probably called them terrorists as well. But I think that uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, I think he was very, very important to moving uh, South Africa away from the apartheid uh, regime. That is, he, he, was a, he was not a mean person. He was he he sought reconciliation as opposed to uh, revenge, and it's not uh, you know throughout a lot of history um, when when one tyrant is uh, is is overthrown, another tyrant takes his place. Matter of fact, many times when I was in, I visited South Africa uh, quite a few times during the uh, apartheid era, and I was telling the people who I spoke to you know uh, large audiences, uh, I said the issue is not. Uh, getting rid of apartheid, the question is, what is going to replace it? Because there are things that are worse than apartheid. And we've seen, we've seen them in, uh, under Mao Zedong, uh, Hitler, and Stalin. All right, I want to shift gears and ask you, would you describe yourself as a libertarian? Do you use that word? Well, I, not a, well a, a small L libertarian. I'm not a part of any political movement. So if that's the case, how do you answer what must be a very, very almost drearily common objection from people who would say, look, Williams, I, I took that conceit out of your columns, look, Williams, <laughs> don't you understand that it was federal actions again and again, whether it's affirmative action or anti-discrimination law or what have you, that created the black middle class and allowed people to prosper, and if you were in charge, well, you know, I mean, you, know, you, you can finish the rest of that question. How do you answer that? Well, well most of the problems that... Uh, black Americans faced in our country uh, from its inception was a failure of government to do the job. That is, the people were able to get these uh, discriminatory laws and Jim Crow laws, and because of with the with the help of government, uh, and and uh, and and the government ignored the extra legal extra legal uh, 
uh, measures that were taken, such as lynching and beating and stuff like that, to to enforce uh, segregation. You know, I think one one of the questions one has realized is that whenever you see a law on the books, one of your first suspicions that it should be is that that law is on the books because not everybody would behave according to the specifications of the law, and so if 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 uh, restaurants or theaters or train companies, trolley cars would not allow blacks to enter under the same condition of whites, why in the world would you ever need a law, segregation laws? Evidently, some, some, some whites would have. And so the, the system would, would have tended to collapse. But speaking of, of, of uh, discrimination, I believe that people have a right to engage in, in discrimination on any basis they want. That is, uh, you know, you can discriminate as far as race or sex or, or criminal background, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't have the right to use government to force other people to concur with your discrimination. And then a lot of times I've written articles about it. As a matter of fact, I've written a whole chapter in my one of my recent books, uh, Race and Economics, and pointing out that people discriminate all the time. I, you know, when I was choosing a wife to marry, I didn't give every woman equal opportunity. You know, I, I discriminate against Chinese, white women, Italian women, women with criminal backgrounds, women did not bathe regularly, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> all right, well, I, st- I want to harp on this a little bit because this is probably one of the hardest most challenging objections for people to deal with, because I think the response comes back, well, are you telling me, though, that, okay, you believe in private property, I I get it, but that you'd want to live in a society where people could put a sign in front of their shop window saying such and such group can't come in here? Is that the society you want to live in? Look, I think that, see, I think that uh, the true test of whether people believe in the idea of freedom of association doesn't come when you allow people to be free to associate in ways that you think they should. They, it, it comes when you allow people to, free, to, to be free to associate in ways that you find despicable. Now, it's just like free speech. One's, the true test of one's commitment to free speech doesn't come when he allows people to say what he thinks they ought to say. The true test of one's commitment to free speech comes when he allows people to say things that he finds offensive. And it's the same thing with freedom of association. And so, yes, I would find it offensive that a person would not let me in their restaurant because I'm black. But nonetheless, I believe I, 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 have, I, I hold freedom in such a high, liberty in such a high esteem that I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't do anything to stop him. That is, I wouldn't do anything for people to people who voluntarily, without the aid of government, decided to uh, discriminate against me or based on my race or based on any other attribute. They might not like tall people or handsome people. You know, it's funny. Just the other day on my Facebook page, a belligerent person thought he was really sticking it to me by saying, Hey, Woods, are you telling me that you would believe in a society in which the Aryan Brotherhood could have their own community and and it would just be them and they would live there? And I said, well, yeah, I guess I do because I don't believe I should have a gun and be able to tell people where they ought to live. But why would that be a bad thing? I would like all these people to live apart from the rest of us so they don't have to be my next door neighbor. Like, why would that be a bad solution? All right. Well, that's, I, I think you're absolutely right. Now, in your... And, and then, then, then the point is, is that you have to keep in mind is that I don't believe, if you, t- if you t- said tomorrow that white people, white uh, uh, restaurant owners have the right not to admit blacks, 
you know, may, maybe you'd find a few uh, that would, would uh, refuse to admit blacks, but the, the overwhelming majority would. And the reason why is that these people are in business to make money. Yeah, right. Especially today. I mean, profit margins are razor thin. Like, it is really costly to indulge your prejudices, especially yeah, and, in And another example uh, of discrimination, would you mind if the the black black people are 80% of professional basketball players and they're the highest paid ones? And and would, would you care if some team said, well, we're not going to have any black basketball players? Well, probably the team would wind up in the cellar. Why would you force them to do something so that they can be more profitable or win more games? I want to ask you, as we start to wind down here, who your inf major influences were, because you obviously came to hold views that are not exactly consonant with those of Jesse Jackson. And yet Jesse Jackson's views are much, much more common among blacks. How did you not get caught in that trap? Like, what, did you read different people? Were you traveling in different intellectual circles? How did, how did Walter Williams come to be? Well, I, I've, I've always been a, a radical, uh, wishing to, that for people to leave me alone. But another thing I tell people, and maybe it's not as nice for me to say this, but I was fortunate enough, I'm, I'm 77 years old, and so I was fortunate enough to get most of my education, or virtually all of my education, before it became fashionable for white people to like black people. And so what that meant is that uh, teachers uh, and, and other mentors, they, they didn't give a damn about uh, uh, hurting my uh, feet, and they didn't give a damn about my self-esteem. They, they would, say, would say things like, uh, Walter, that's absolutely wrong. That's nonsense. And uh, and and then I I I I went to uh, I got my PhD at UCLA, and uh, and I was and I was under the influence of very very tenacious mentors. I met I took classes from Milton Friedman, Armin Alshin, uh, and uh, and and Frederick Hayek. Frederick Hayek came and lectured a couple times. Wow. And uh, and so I had some tough-minded people. One time, uh, one one uh, mentor, uh, Axel Laniford, a, a Swedish economist. Uh, he was on the faculty at UCLA. Uh, you know, I was telling him, you know, that I I think that the minimum wage law is a good is a is a good idea. This was like back in the in the sixties. Oh, okay. And and so he said he so he asked me. He said, "Well, which do you care about the most, the uh, the intentions behind the law, or the effects of the law?" And to look at the effects of the law, why don't you read read uh, Yale Brosen's article? And he gave me a couple of Milton Friedman's uh, articles, and then I read them. And, uh, and 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 uh, you know I I changed my mind. The, the evidence, just the evidence, uh, caused me to change my mind. And so and this was this was uh, true with uh, many things. What do you make of what now seems to be the fashionable trend among economists to all of a sudden now support an increase in the minimum wage? Well, <laughs> well, you know I I think they can support them, but they cannot deny the effects. What some, what many economists are saying? Well, look. Uh, or what some are saying, look, we recognize that there are unemployment effects of the minimum wage law, but we can take care of the unemployment by, by food stamps and welfare. But we say that, well, the, the people who get the jobs, uh, you know, will somehow be better off. And, and nonetheless, it is true, that is, those people who get to, who receive a, a, a higher wage uh, the, and also keep their job, many of them will be uh, better off for, for a while. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> For what? Yeah. For example, it's very interesting that that you see uh, with the uh, at Wawa, 
if you go to Wawa uh, and you go and order, well, you know, there's nobody to take your order anymore. Yeah, right. They're, 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 they're little machines. Yeah. <laughs> they got their <laughs> wish. Somebody makes, yeah. somebody makes a sandwich and you go to the cashier. So what the higher minimum wages uh, tend to reduce uh, um, uh, employment sooner or later. All right, last thing. Uh, this can be quick, but I have a lot of people want to know, have you had second thoughts about the Iraq war in the ensuing years? Well, I, I think that, um, well, uh, yeah, you have second thoughts, but I think that if, 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 we, if we should have been there at all, that we should not have sent troops, that is, we should have used, uh, uh, we should have fought a, cap, a more capital-intensive war. That is, if there's a basis for unseating Saddam Hussein, well, we could have easily unseated uh, um, unseated him, and then just returned. But we decided to try to engage in nation-building, and that was a major mistake. Suppose somebody wants to dive into Walter Williams' work. Do you have one particular book you'd steer them to first? Well, um... No, I, I, well, I, well, at first I would suggest they, they would go to my webpage, is WalterEWilliams.com, and there's, there are many things that I've written there, uh, and there are a lot of videos that, that are on the uh, webpage of, you know, of, <laughs> of lectures that I've given. And, and then I, I think uh, one, of the, uh, one of the books that I'm proud of, a very small book, and is, the, uh, is, um, is Economics and Race. A race in economics, and the subtitle is "How much does discrimination explain?" Right. right, I I don't believe that racial discrimination explains as much as people say it explains. Which is not to deny the existence of racial discrimination, but it just does not explain very much nowadays. Now, there's a great book. uh, Of course, I'm sure you know uh, Thomas Sowell had a one of his underrated books, "Civil Rights: Rhetoric or Reality," takes on that topic. But the a lot of that data would be out of date by now because the book is from the mid '80s. So, oh yeah, but but I, some of the data will be at it, but the principles and yeah, theory is right, not right. Right. Well, Walter Williams, I I sure appreciate your time. I mean, about I think it was about twenty twenty one years ago. I was at an IHS event at Harvard. You spoke at, and I got my copy of the State Against Blacks signed. I have cherished that thing <laughs> ever since, and I sure appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Okay, Tom. Let's do it again. The Tom Woods Show. We're very pleased to have Brian McClanahan with us. Brian has a PhD from the University of South Carolina. At least one of his books is for sale outside, and I'm sure he'd be happy to sign it to you. But I would say that he's right up there with Tom Woods in terms of someone who really understands the Constitution with all of its <coughs> good and bad, and really understands our founding period, and really <coughs> understands the nonsense that surrounds that founding period and that still permeates our society today. So, Brian, thanks so much for being with us today. So, uh, I'm going to start today actually applying this to Texas. We're in Texas. So, I'm going to start with a letter that everyone in Texas should know. If you don't know it, you should leave. To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continued bombardment in Cannonade for 24 hours and am not lost to man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I've answered that demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. 
then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is retrieving inf receiving inf reinforcements daily, and we will no doubt increase to three or 4,000 in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. I'm sure everybody knows what the last line is. Anyone want to mention what it is? Victory or death? Alabamian William Barrett Travis. I had to throw that in there since I'm living in Alabama. <laughs> now, I begin with this letter not because of the situation and the... the um, the violence at the Alamo, but because there's two parts of the letter that speak to this topic today. First, to all Americans in the world. He's not talking just to Texas. He's talking, speaking to all Americans in the world. And what was the issue? Independence. The American tradition. And thus it should be supported by Americans everywhere, whether you're in Texas or elsewhere, or somewhere else in, in the United States at the time. Americans have a distinctive history. There, of course, are examples of secession in classical history, mainly Greece, in relation to the Persian and Athenian empires. And again, in the 16th century, in regard to religion, the secession of the Protestant churches from the Catholic church. But in the modern age, America really has established the method and set the example for others to follow. Remember, Jefferson's call on the Declaration of Independence, he said, we have a right and a duty as a free people to be able to alter or abolish our system of government. And this was based on traditional English liberties. But no one really had tried to do it until that point, until the American cause for independence in 1775. This is often incorrectly labeled an act of revolution or rebellion, but Jefferson himself called it an act of secession later in his life. And he was correct. For in reality, the American war for independence was a constitutional crisis in relation to the powers of the British central government. This was to prevent a revolution rather than have a revolution. The revolution was coming from the British center. They were trying to alter the Constitution. Americans had exercised almost exclusive jurisdiction over the local affairs since the founding of the first permanent colony in 1607. So when the Central Authority Parliament clamped down on the colonies after the French and Indian War, colonial leaders rejected parliamentary overreach and instead declared their independence in essence, seceded from the British Constitution to preserve their liberty and right to self-determination and, most importantly, self-government. So that's the first point. Americans everywhere should embrace this. Second, there's Travis's request in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character. What does that mean? Certainly, Texas believed it had a legal right to declare its independence in 1836. It was seceding from the Mexican Empire. Some would call this an act of revolution again, but the Texans asserted that it was the government in Mexico City that had caused a revolution. And I'll quote you from the 1836 Texas Declaration of Independence. When a government has ceased to protect the lives, liberty, and property of the people from whom its legitimate powers are derived, and for the advancement of whose happiness it was instituted, and so far from being a guarantee for the enjoyment of those inestimable and inalienable rights, becomes an instrument in the hands of the evil rulers for their oppression, when the federal republican constitution of their country, which they have sworn to support, no longer has a substantial existence, and the whole nature of their government has been forcibly changed, without their consent, from a restricted federated republic composed of sovereign states to a consolidated central military despotism in which every interest is disregarded but that of the army and the priesthood, 
both the eternal enemies of civil liberty, the ever-ready minions of power, and the usual instruments of tyrants, it thus became the right of their people to alter or to abolish that government and institute a new government. So the American character Travis refers to is this opposition to these transgressions and the right of self-determination. We would call that liberty. Texas then gained its independence in 1836, claiming it had a right to do so because of the American origin of its inhabitants. It was an independent political entity for nine years. It agreed to enter the Union in 1845 on equal footing with the other states. At least that had been the American tradition. But the people of Texas never relinquished their sovereignty. Sovereignty cannot be divided or surrendered. You either have it or you don't. Sovereignty can be delegated, but a delegation assumes the ability to rescind that power. And I often use an analogy with my students. Say I gave them the ability to grade their own tests, and they're all going to come back A's. So then I could override those grades because I have the power to do so. I delegated that authority. John C. Calhoun said the divided sovereignty was like half a triangle or half a square. They don't exist. Half sovereignty is the same. So when Texas acceded to the Union, and thus by logical deduction, they could secede from the Union by popular will. And they did so in 1861. Which brings me to another important part of Texas history, the famous or infamous case, Supreme Court decision of Texas v. White in 1869. This case is almost universally used as an argument against the legality of secession. And in fact, this was brought up several years ago. I was at another conference um, in Florida. And somebody stood up at the Q&A and said, well, Dr. McClanahan, you say all these things, but, you know, the Supreme Court decided in 1869 that secession was illegal. And my response was, so what? Amen! <laughs> I wasn't trying to be flippant. But of course the Supreme Court was going to argue against secession. They're going to say it's unconstitutional. Why wouldn't they? This is 1869. The United States had just waged a war for four years to prevent it. So to do otherwise would be saying, whoops, um, sorry, uh, South, you were right. Uh, you, you lost, but you were right to begin with. They're not going to do that. The chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time, Salmon P. Chase, who was a Lincoln appointee, said in the decision, the union between Texas and the other states was, a, was as complete, as perpetual, as indissoluble as the union between the original states. There was no place for reconsideration or revocation except through revolution or through consent of the states. So he bases reasoning on the one people nationalist argument made famous by Joseph Story and his commentaries on the Constitution, but advanced by every nationalist from 1787 forward. There's a great political theorist named Albert Taylor Bledsoe who humorously called this the great political discovery of Abraham Lincoln. He just was searching and he discovered this out of thin air. So is secession legal? I've argued extensively that it is. There are several ways to approach the argument and to refute the Hamilton, Marshall, Story, Lincoln, nationalist lie that secession is illegal and treason. Secession as accomplished by the southern states in 1861 and as discussed over and over again in the north, in fact, first in the north, is an independent act by the people of the states and accomplished in the same fashion as the several conventions that occurred throughout early American history. The United States would never be a party to a lawsuit on the issue because secession, both de facto and de jure, is an act of self-determination. And once the states have seceded from the Union, the Constitution is no longer enforced in regard to the seceded political body. 
The same rule applies to Article I, Section 10, argument against secession. Article I, Section 10 says the states can't form confederations. Well, if the Constitution is no longer in force, the states have separated and resumed their independent status, then the Supreme Court would not have jurisdiction and therefore cannot determine the legality of the move. The Union then, of course, could declare war or could attempt to force the seceded states to remain. But even victorious, this has not solved the philosophical issue it never has. War and violence do not and cannot crush the natural right of self-determination. It can muddle the picture and force the vanquished into submission so long as the boot is firmly planted on their collective throats, but a bloody nose and a prostrate people settles nothing. Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut said in 1788 that he feared a coercion of arms in relation to a delinquent state. He said this, this constitution does not attempt to coerce sovereign bodies, states, in their political capacity. No coercion is applicable to such bodies, but that of armed, an armed force. If we, did, if we should attempt to execute the laws of the Union by sending an armed force against a delinquent state, it would involve the good and the bad, the innocent and the guilty in the same calamity. So Ellsworth recognized, as did the majority of the founding generation, that force did not destroy sovereignty. It created artificial supremacy, but sovereignty, the basic tenet of the founding, could not be surrendered in such a manner. And of course, what we must also emphasize is that an act of war also destroys Republican government. Maryland said as much in 1861. They formed a committee and, and uh, issued a report about the crisis of 1861. This is what the report said. Subjugated provinces could not be sister states and a federal government professedly Republican maintaining the authority by armies could not be other than the worst and most unprincipled and uncontrollable of despotisms. The South has entrenched itself upon the principle of self-government, is offered to negotiate peaceably and honorably upon all matters of common property and divided interests, claiming only that three millions of people had a right to throw off a government by which they no longer desired to be ruled and to live under no other government of, and to live under a government of their own choosing. Unless the American Revolution was a crime, the Declaration of Independence is falsehood, and every patriot and hero of 1776 a traitor, the South was right and the North was wrong upon that issue. In the Texas v. White decision, Justice Chase implicitly recognized that the Union was indissoluble contract between the American people and the federal government, or in this case, the people of Texas and the federal government. All contracts are intended to be perpetual. But if this was the case, how could nine states ratify a new constitution while four states remain part of another union in clear violation of the language of the Articles of Confederation? Changes to the Articles required the consent of all 13 states, not nine, and thus the Constitution can be viewed in part as an act of secession. Moreover, James Madison argued that the Union was a different type of contract. He said, I quote, We are not to consider the Federal Union as analogous to the social compact of individuals. For if it were, a majority would have the right to bind the rest and even to form a new Constitution for the whole. The Constitution was framed by the unanimous consent of the states present in the convention assembled in Philadelphia, but it had no teeth until the states and convention ratified it. Even at that point, Madison suggested the states could not bind the rest into accepting the document or remaining in the Union. The Constitution does not have a coercive principle, as Ellsworth called it. An indissoluble Union would suggest that it does, and it doesn't. Waging war against them, the states, which is from the Constitution, is an act of treason. As So a state can be protected by the central government, on the application of the legislature or the executive in case of invasion, but Lincoln had neither. 
Lincoln violated both the constitutional safeguards against coercion by the central government in 1861, of course, only if the states remained in the Union, as he insisted they did. So if he didn't have that authority, then war would have been required from Congress, which is something Lincoln did not have either. He didn't have a declaration of war. And if he did have a declaration of war, then Congress would have to recognize the Confederate states as a legitimate government. Either way, Lincoln violated the Constitution, thus rendering the bloody nose argument again against secession void. Now, this one people argument against uh, secession was dissected by John Taylor of Caroline, a great uh, political uh, philosopher from Virginia, in his new views on the Constitution of the United States. Taylor contended that continuity between the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution reinforced the sovereignty of the states. This is an interesting argument. So because the Articles of Confederation was there, and we had this Constitution, it's just a more perfect union, a union of what? States. And he said this, this is a wonderful quote, there are many states in America, but no state of America, nor any people of an American state. A Constitution for America or Americans would there have been similar to a constitution for utopia or utopians. This is in sharp contrast to Chase, who argued that continuity maintained perpetual union. Taylor said, the, the, this construction bestows the same meaning upon the same words that are three constituent or elemental in instruments and exhibits the reason why the whole language of the constitution is a, uh, financed to the idea of a league between sovereign states and hostile to that of a consolidated nation. The text of the Constitution itself clearly states it is, a, it is an agreement or a compact between the states so ratifying the same, not the people in the federal government. That idea is a fabricated distortion of the Constitution and pure fiction. So a few parting words on the issue of secession as the American tradition. That is, after all, the title of my talk. Secession and liberty are synonymous. Secession is the greatest act of liberty. It is the right of self-determination and self-government. And I think we should always realize that and put it in those terms. It is not easy. Not everyone wants this type of liberty. And for most of human history, it's been violently opposed by the central authority. But there is hope. In 1991, several states seceded from the Soviet Union, and no tanks were sent in. So I think as young people look at this, they're starting to say, wow, the emperor has no clothes in Washington, D.C. They're starting to realize this. And so therefore, people are waking up to the idea of peaceful secession. But there's also individual acts of secession, as Jeff just related to, and they're happening every day in America, from homeschooling to community farming. It is a natural incl inc inclination for independent people to have control over their own lives. This type of secession is important for political reasons, though. The founding generation were independent people, as were Texans in 1836. Independent thinkers who led independent lives are naturally drawn to political independence. They can't be bought or controlled. But we must not follow Thoreau's type of secession, simple removal from society. But John Randolph of Roanoke's insistence on saying no from a position of strength. Now, why could he do this? Because he could simply go back to his farm. We must lead independent lives, but remain politically involved with the sole intent of saying no. And of course, the best example will be the last speaker today, Dr. No. <clears throat> we can say this in the general government, that would be helpful, but we have to say it from state and local communities, because that is the hedge against tyranny. If enough Americans make this choice, 
the choice to abide by Travis's call for all Americans in the world to action in the name of liberty, patriotism, and everything dear to the American character, we can and will achieve peaceful, peaceful success. Secession is the American tradition, and libertarians should and must help lead the way. Thank you very much. Thank you.